I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. By the banks of the River Thames sits the Palace of Westminster, home to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It is one of the oldest democratic institutions in the world and known as the Mother of Parliaments, as, thanks to the British Empire, the Westminster parliamentary tradition has influenced many other chambers around the world, from Australia and Canada to the Bahamas and Papua New Guinea. It is a potent symbol of democracy and the rule of law. But across the road from it stands an equally potent monument to rebellion. A bronze sculpture of a woman standing aboard a chariot pulled by two rearing horses. Her arms are outstretched, one aloft, the other holding a spear. She is Boudicca, rebel against Imperial Rome. On either side are her two young daughters, violated by the occupying forces and in a crouch, as if waiting to pounce. Two monuments, one to the forces of order, empire and democracy, the other to violence, liberty and heroism. When enmeshed together, they really define not only British history, but the very essence of British identity. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.3, Boudicca, a woman of many faces. Last time, we saw Boudicca, the queen of the Iceni, move from being a friend of Rome to being its bitterest enemy. Her uprising following her tribe's annexation, her flogging and the rape of her daughters was bloody in the extreme. Three cities were razed to the ground, a Roman army almost totally destroyed and 70,000 Roman citizens dead. All that stood between her and her goal of driving the Romans out of Britannia was their one remaining army under the command of Governor Suetonius Paulinus. He had so far resisted engaging Boudicca's forces, abandoning cities to their fate, and retreating northwest. 
Today, we will see Boudicca's final battle and her enduring legacy in British culture, which has seen her attain the rank of folk heroinehood. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. I'd particularly like to thank Joanne, James, Margaret, Jennifer and Emily, who have become patrons in recent weeks. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. If you'd like to ask me any questions or talk with fellow other half listeners, then you can do so on the Lyceum app, details of which are in the podcast show notes. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. We don't know where Paulinus halted his retreat and made his stand, but it was somewhere on what later became known as Watling Street, a Roman road that stretched between Roxeter on the Welsh border and Canterbury in Kent, cutting through London en route along the old Kent Road. It now makes up part of the A2 and the A5. No archaeological remains have been found to prove exactly where the battlefield was. All we have to go on is this description by Tacitus. Quote, Paulinus chose a position approached by a narrow gorge, closed in at the rear by a forest, having first ascertained that there was not a soldier of the enemy except in his front, where an open plain extended without any danger from ambush. Now this description really could be anywhere, and so speculation has continued for hundreds of years about where the battlefield actually was. The current consensus is that it lies somewhere on the border of Warwickshire and Leicestershire, but other suggestions have it taking place close to London. Indeed, in the 19th century, it was popularly believed to have occurred on the site of King's Cross Railway Station, and Boudicca's Cross was initially proposed as an alternate name for it. Wherever it was, Tacitus does, at least, give us a rough topographical view of the battlefield. Suetonius was massively outnumbered, surrounded by enemies, and with no hope of reinforcement. The Britons had already destroyed one Roman army, albeit a smaller one, and they were swelling with confidence with every day of the uprising. But Suetonius Paulinus did hold one trump card, and that was the ability to choose his battlefield, and he did so very wisely. He had to negate the advantage that Boudicca had in numbers, so he set his troops in a position protected by trees to his rear and on his flanks. The only way to attack was through a narrow gorge, hitting the Romans head on. Tacitus then goes on to describe how the two armies deployed. Quote, His legions were in close array. Round them the light-armed troops and the cavalry in dense array on the wings. On the other side, the army of the Britons, with its masses of infantry and cavalry, was confidently exulting, a vaster host than ever had assembled, and so fierce in spirit that they actually brought with them, to witness the victory, their wives riding in wagons, which they had placed on the extreme border of the plain. Now, this isn't a military history podcast, so I'm not going to go into in-depth detail about the armies, 
but they were as different as chalk and cheese. The Romans were a mixed army, consisting of both cavalry and infantry, all armoured, shielded, and armed with the latest in military technology, including deadly javelins and a short stabbing sword. The Roman legionary was a well-trained and disciplined killing machine that had conquered an army that stretched from this very island to the Middle East. To quote one historian, quote, For the Romans, war was not only a serious business, it was the only business. By contrast, the Britons were a far more motley group. They had few professional soldiers as such, and most of their men were likely armoured, if at all. While many would have been armed with the Celtic broadsword, others would have had to make do with whatever they could get their hands on. The richest among them, including Boudicca, would have been on chariots, not on heavy-duty ones that you're probably imagining, but light ones made of wicker. What they had in abundance, though, were numbers, reputation, and confidence. As mentioned by Tacitus in the earlier quote, they had brought all their wagons and families with them to the battlefield and placed at the rear. As they formed themselves, they shouted and cried war songs to intimidate the enemy, whom they outnumbered at least ten to one. And as I said, the Britons had brought their families along with them, who had watched the battle in a great wagon line that they had set up to their rear. At this point, both Tacitus and Cassius Dio devote quite a bit of time to pre-battle speeches. This was a common trope of ancient historians, and was a way to both contextualise what was about to happen, and show the differences between the two armies and commanders. Whether or not they actually said any of this is unknown, and frankly doubtful, but that's not really important. We know that pre-battle speeches were given, and these tellings are very revealing of what points the historians are trying to get across. Let's start with Boudicca, since she is our heroine, and with her speech in Tacitus' Annales. Boudicca, with her daughters before her in a chariot, went up to tribe after tribe, stating that it was usual for Britons to fight under the leadership of women. Quote, But now, it is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging lost freedom, my scourged body, the outraged chastity of my daughters. Roman lust has gone so far that not our very persons, nor even age or virginity, are left unpolluted. So here Tacitus is displaying both Celtic and Roman feminine values. She defends the right of British women to lead armies, something more for the Roman audiences one suspects, while also playing on that notion of womanhood as being something for men to defend. She displays herself and her daughters as victims of Roman brutality and oppression. This then links their suffering and loss of innocence as symbolic of Celtic Britain's experience. What had happened to them was happening to everyone, and would continue to happen if they did not throw out the invaders. Tacitus then continued, quote, But heaven is on the side of a righteous vengeance. A legion which dared to fight has perished. The rest are hiding themselves in their camp, or are thinking anxiously of flight. They will not sustain even the din and the shout of so many thousands, much less our charge and our blows. If you weigh well the strength of the armies and the causes of the war, you will see that in this battle you must conquer or die. This is a woman's resolve. As for men, they may live and be slaves. 
She is, therefore, telling her soldiers that they need only to beat this army to finish the job, and that they must win, or all will be lost. Cassius Dio's account has a similar speech, but is located earlier in the story, as Boudicca first assembled her army. It's rather long, so I won't quote it in full, but it does take a rather different tack from that of Tacitus. The first part of the speech exhorts her men to unite behind her or die. Quote, you have learned by actual experience how different freedom is from slavery. For what treatment is there of the most shameful or grievous sort that we have not suffered ever since these men made their appearance in Britain? Have we not been robbed entirely of most of our possessions? And those the greatest, while for those that remain we pay taxes? However, even at this late day, though we have not done so before, let us, my countrymen and friends, And kinsmen, let us, I say, do our duty while we still remember what freedom is, that we may leave to our children not only its appellation, but also its reality. For, if we utterly forget the happy state in which we were born and bred, what, pray, will they do reared in bondage? She then moves on to explain why they should not fear the Romans. Quote, Have no fear whatever of the Romans, for they are superior to us neither in numbers nor in bravery. And here is the proof. They have protected themselves with helmets and breastplates and greaves. Indeed, we enjoy such a surplus of bravery that we regard our tents as safer than their walls and our shields as affording greater protection than their whole suits of mail. She is, therefore, portraying the Britons as simpler, less soft, more adapted to their surroundings than the cowering Romans. She then finishes her speech by calling for the protection of Andraste, who Cassius Dio claims was a Celtic goddess of victory. Quote, I thank thee, Andraste, and call upon thee as woman speaking to woman. For I rule over no burden-bearing Egyptians as did Necritus, much less over the Romans themselves as did Messalina once, and afterwards Agrippina, and now Nero who, though in name a man, is in fact a woman, as proved by his singing, lyre-playing, and beautification of his person. Nay, those over whom I rule are Britons, men that know not only how to till the soil or ply a trade, but are thoroughly versed in the art of war, and hold all things in common, even children and wives, so that the latter possess the same valour as the men. As the queen, then, of such men and of such women... I supplicate and pray thee for victory, preservation of life, and liberty against men insolent, unjust, insatiable, impious. Wherefore may this mistress Domitia Nero reign no longer over me or over your men. Let the wretch sing and lord it over the Romans, for they surely deserve to be the slaves of such a woman, having submitted to her for so long. But for us, mistress, be thou alone ever our leader. Now, what Boudicca is doing here, or rather what Cassius Dio is doing, is contrasting the martial and masculine image of Celtic womanhood, embodied by her, with the supplicative and meek feminine manhood of Emperors Claudius and Nero, who have been dominated by Messalina and Agrippina. We, of course, covered them in the first season of the podcast. Now, Cassius Dio is not fond of either of these things. He doesn't like manly women or girly men. 
that way leads to death and destruction. Indeed, that is really what colours his narrative of this whole campaign. He wants manly men and women of the meek, docile femininity that he deemed to be virtuous. That is the yellow brick road towards peace and harmony in Cassius Dio's world. The sources, though, agree far more on Paulinus's speech. They have him telling his troops to stand firm, trust in their training, and they will be victorious. I particularly like his words in Tacitus. Quote, Treat with contempt the noise and empty menaces of the barbarians. In the rank opposite, more women than soldiers meet the eye. Unwarlike and unarmed, they would break immediately when, taught by so many defeats, they recognise once more the steel and the valour of their conquerors. Only keeping their order close, and when their javelins were discharged, employing the shield, boss and sword, let them steadily pile up the dead and forget the thought of plunder. Once the victory was gained, all would be their own. So again, what these sources are doing is contrasting the supposed barbarity and otherness of the Britons with their mannish female commander with the traditional masculine valour of the Romans. Cassius Dio does go a little further than Tacitus does in his description of the stakes. Just as he did with his descriptions of the destructions of the cities, he is very graphic in his warnings of what would happen should they lose. And I will give you a warning here, this is, as I say, rather graphic. Quote, If the outcome should prove contrary to our hope, it would be better for us to fall fighting bravely than to be captured and impaled, to look upon our own entrails cut from our bodies, to be spitted on red-hot skewers, to perish by being melted in boiling water, in a word, to suffer as though we have been thrown to lawless and impious wild beasts. Let us, therefore, either conquer them or die. The battle began with Boudicca's forces charging towards the Roman position. When they got to around 30 metres, the Romans hurled their javelins. A deadly hail of 10,000 missiles that would have cut through the front ranks of the charge. Those that had not been killed, wounded or obstructed by this would have looked up to see a second volley raining down upon them. Those that had shields would have found them cracked and weighed down by the javelins. Most Britons did not have shields, and so would have been cut down. The charge thus disrupted, the Romans then advanced in a wedge formation. When the armies met, it was like waves crashing against a cliff. The long British sword was useless in such a tight, confined space against the large Roman shields. The short Roman sword, though, was absolutely perfect, and so the legions cut a swathe through the lightly armoured Britons. The armies were equal in valour, but poles apart in terms of quality of equipment and training. The overwhelming advantage of the Britons in numbers was useless when they were funnelled into the gorge. Indeed, they were a positive disadvantage, as the front ranks would have been crushed against the Roman swords by the weight of pressure from the rear. Slowly, methodically, the Romans began to push the Britons back before, finally, Boudicca and her men were pinned against their own baggage train. Unable to retreat, 
they were cut to pieces, any stragglers chased down by the Roman cavalry. Their families, including children, shared their fate. It was a bloody day. In all, something in the range of 80,000 Britons lay dead at the cost of a few hundred Romans. The uprising was over, and with it any real hope of the Celtic Britons throwing off the Roman yoke. Boudicca had been playing their final hand, and they had been beaten. The sources are not clear on where exactly Boudicca would have been, but she likely would have been in the thick of the fighting. They agree that she survived the slaughter, but died shortly afterwards. They disagree as to how, though, she met her maker. Tacitus has her taking poison, an end mirroring that of Cleopatra. Cassius Dio has her escaping, along with a small number of her forces, and continuing the fight, but ultimately succumbing to disease. Neither source mentions what happened to her daughters. If you take the Tacitus form of events, then quite likely they would have taken poison as well. If you believe Cassius Dio, well, then we're entering the world of wild speculation, but best-case scenario, they would have been enslaved, which is hardly a best-case scenario, is it? However she died, Boudicca's rebellion was brutally snuffed out at what has become known as the Battle of Watling Street. Suetonius Paulinus went on a murderous rampage after his victory, leading to violent reprisals, famine and destruction on a scale only matched by Boudicca herself. This had been a fight to the death, the last gasp of British liberty, and Rome had triumphed. The cycle of violence, though, was broken by the man who replaced Catus as procurator, a man called Julius Classicianus. He wrote back to Rome, warning that Paulinus' campaign of repression risked embedding a latent resentment that may bubble over into a new revolt. Paulinus then was transferred to a new command, and a new governor was put in place in Britannia, with orders to be more conciliatory to the natives, ensuring that the conditions that had caused Boudicca's revolt to happen were not repeated. And it worked. There were a few more isolated revolts over the next few centuries, and of course the Romans never managed to conquer the tribes in northern Scotland. But, for the most part, the island was at peace for the next few centuries, the Celtic tribesmen becoming more and more integrated into the Roman Empire. The story of Boudicca, then, was largely lost, mentioned in some of the histories by scholars on the continent, and perhaps repeated in the oral tradition by some die-hard enemies of Rome, but, for the most part, forgotten. And this remained the case for around one and a half thousand years. When English medieval writers sought to find an origin story for Britain, they tended to look elsewhere for a hero figure. Geoffrey of Monmouth, for example, chose a Trojan called Brutus as the founder of Britain, along with his later descendant, King Arthur. However, these legendary accounts were undermined by the discovery of old Latin texts, but it wasn't until the invention of the printing press and the rediscovery of Tacitus during the Renaissance that Boudicca's story came to light again. By now, England, once again, was united under a female ruler, Elizabeth I. This came at a time when the idea of female power was still an unusual one, and queens regnant often had to clothe themselves in male garb in order to obtain legitimacy. Elizabeth was no different. 
and the idea of the warrior queen in the Budokan mould was extremely useful for her during the war against Spain in the latter half of her reign. In the first episode of the series, we discussed her famous speech at Tilbury that may or may not have actually happened. But it is clear that Elizabeth took great pains to align herself with this great warrior queen of the past. Like Boudicca, Elizabeth was standing up for her people against a continental expansionist empire that was looking to impose its religion and culture on England. Unlike Boudicca, of course, Elizabeth's forces triumphed. But what is important is that the Boudican example was meant to calm male fears about female power. In these tellings, the slaughter and destruction of Boudicca's rebellion were downplayed, with her story portrayed as a fight for freedom against a more powerful foe. This is reflected in the history of Raphael Hollinshed, the greatest historian of the age, whose book was the source for most of the history plays of Shakespeare. Hollinshed dedicates much of his discussion of ancient Britain to Boudicca's story. His Boudicca, or Vudicia as he calls her, is mostly based off Cassius Dio, but in his telling Boudicca is transformed into a sort of spokeswoman for freedom and of English national consciousness. He describes her thusly, quote, Her mighty tall personage, comely shape, severe countenance and sharp voice, with her long yellow tresses of hair reaching down to her thighs, her brave and gorgeous apparel also caused the people to have her in great reverence. There is quite a bit of Elizabethan imagery here, and this is compounded with an image that accompanied it in the book that had the Britons in 16th century armour, and Boudicca dressed in one of Elizabeth's outfits. Another Elizabethan writer who extolled Boudicca's virtues was Edmund Spencer, author of The Fairy Queen, a kind of literary love letter to Queen Elizabeth, who, rather than warning against the excesses of female power, makes a virtue out of it, making Bunduka, as he calls her, a virtuous and courageous national martyr. Quote, Whilst Romans daily did the weak subdue, which seeing stout Bunduka up arose, and taking arms the Britons to her drew, with whom she marched straight against her foes, and them unawares beside the seven did enclose. There she with them a cruel battle tried, not with so good success as she deserved, by reasons that the captains on her side, corrupted by Paulinus from her sword, yet such as were through former flight preserved, gathering again her host she did renew, and with fresh courage on the victor served. But, being all defeated save a few, rather than fly or be captived, herself she slew. It is from here that we see the green shoots of the image of Boudicca as a national hero, a rallying cry for English and later British liberty against the forces of darkness, whatever those forces happened to be at the time. These accounts tend to conveniently gloss over the fact that she lost her battle and the terrible consequences of her failure, instead focusing on the more heroic aspects of the story. During the Stuart period we see some writers like Ben Johnson and John Speed continue to pursue this narrative. But we also see some more critical portrayals, once again focusing on the supposed dangers of giving women too much power. John Fletcher, a rival of William Shakespeare, wrote a tragedy in this period called Bonduca, where he portrayed her as a mannish, rash and headstrong woman. Courageous, yes, in battle, 
but whose manliness led her to disaster, comparing her negatively to the men in the play. Even more negative was John Milton, who, in his History of Britain, published in 1670, slams Tacitus and Cassius Dio for their sloppiness and temerity, saying that they, quote, set out their history with the strangeness of our manners, not caring in the meanwhile to brand us with the rankest note of barbarism, as if in Britain women were men, and men women. Milton there, showing the liberality and chilled-out mannerisms that he is well known for to this day. He went on to say that the Britons, quote, manifested themselves to be right barbarians. No rule, no foresight, no forecast, experience or estimation, either of themselves or of their enemies. Such confusion, such impotence, as seemed likest not to a war, but to the wild hurry of a distracted woman. After the Restoration, a load more plays were written, featuring Boudicca, mostly adapted from Fletcher's Bonduca. But again, they tended to shave off some of the more violent aspects of her story, and emphasise instead her reputation as a national hero. The most notable of these was a reworking of Fletcher's pay by John Powell, which was accompanied by music by acclaimed composer Henry Purcell. One of the songs, To Arms to Arms, became a popular patriotic song. Powell's play coincided with women being permitted to perform on the London stage for the first time, and Boudicca was a very popular character for these early actress pioneers, including Elizabeth Barry. These two views of Boudicca, that of the rash and mannish Virago and the freedom-fighting warrior queen, dominated the cultural representation of Boudicca for the next couple of centuries with writers and playwrights essentially deciding for themselves which they preferred. What is notable, though, in both of these versions is that Boudicca is often overshadowed and outranked by another male Briton of some sort. In the more negative portrayals, this man is seen as the rational and capable one, where Boudicca was rash, inexperienced and violent. In the more positive ones, Boudicca is seen to delegate most of the key decisions to this male figure, with her acting as more of a moral and inspirational figurehead. The 18th century saw the popularisation of the most popular visual representation of Boudicca, that of a spear-carrying, bare-breasted woman on a war chariot. This first appeared in Tobias Smollett's Complete History of England in 1757, and quickly became the most popular image of Boudicca. As we go into the 18th and 19th centuries, Britain's position in the world was changing, no longer was she a plucky little island nation defending itself against more powerful continental empires. Now, she was the empire, expanding her cultural and military might across the globe. This change in geopolitical reality affected how Britons saw themselves and their history. A common theme in a lot of nations in this period was a tendency to look to ancient Rome for inspiration for their new governmental institutions. This is particularly apparent, for example, in the United States. It named its upper house as the Senate and made it a home for the patrician classes. And if you go to central Washington, D.C., or indeed most state capitals, you will find a glut of neoclassical architecture on their government buildings. Britain, however, went in a slightly different direction, seeing itself as superior to the Roman Empire, both in terms of size and governmental sophistication. Therefore instead of copying its institutions, 
it emphasised its difference. Boudicca, therefore, as a ferocious opponent of Rome, was held up as a patriotic hero, a progenitor of the all-conquering British Empire. A great example of this is in the poet William Cowper's Boudicca and Ode. The poem starts with a druid stating, Rome shall perish, write that word, in the blood that she has spilt, perish hopelessness and abhorred, deep in ruin and in guilt. Rome, for empire far renowned, tramples on a thousand states. Soon her pride will kiss the ground. Hark, the ghoul is at her gates. This continues for a few verses, before ending with Boudicca, with the druid's words ringing in her ears, taking the fight to Rome. She, with all a monarch's pride, felt them in her bosom glow. Rushed to battle, fought and died, dying hurled them at the foe. Ruffians pitiless as proud, heaven awards the vengeance due. Empire is on us bestowed, shame and ruin wait for you. So what we have here is Boudicca's final battle being transformed into a glorious stand by one nascent empire against an established decaying one. Rome may have won this round, but eventually Britain would win the war. This image of Boudicca would dominate for the next two centuries as the British Empire grew in size and scope. Poems by Francis Barker and Alfred Lord Tennyson developed this theme throughout the 19th century a period that also saw the popularity of historical novels soar. Aimed predominantly at Victorian boys, these books placed Boudicca among the pantheon of British heroes, alongside the likes of King Arthur, Robin Hood and the Black Prince. Boudicca's position in British culture reached its zenith during the reign of Queen Victoria. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the name Boudicca is derived from the Celtic word for victory, as of course is the modern name, Victoria. Propagandists at the time were therefore keen to tie together the image of the modern Queen Victoria, monarch over a vast empire, to that of the ancient Victoria, the woman who started it all by defying Rome. In truth, of course, the women had very little in common. Queen Victoria was not a woman who approved of war, frequently urging her prime ministers to avoid it at all costs. Her role also had far less political power than that of Boudicca, and it's very hard to imagine her leading troops into battle. This Victorian idea of Boudicca and her last stand against Rome as the origin story of the British Empire is best shown in visual terms in Thomas Thornycroft's sculpture Boadicea and Her Daughters, which I talked about in the intro to this episode. Thornycroft was a popular Victorian sculptor, whose most famous works depict historical figures from British history, including Alfred the Great and Charles I. He was a favourite of Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, who took a great personal interest in the creation of the work. He commissioned Thornycroft to create a throne on wheels for Boudicca, intending the sculpture to be located at one of the gates to Hyde Park. He even lent the artist two of his own horses as inspirations for the steeds pulling the chariot. Albert and Thornycroft were both keen for the statue not to be a slave to historical accuracy, but instead invoke the feeling of patriotism and emphasise the links with Queen Victoria. Therefore, the chariot bears no resemblance to the light, flimsy wicker vehicles of Boudicca's day and is instead regal and solid. Boudicca herself is modelled on a young Queen Victoria, 
though of course considerably taller. Prince Albert's death in 1861 slowed the project down, and it took 15 years for the model to be created. Even then, there wasn't the money for it to be cast in bronze, and it wasn't until the artist's death that the money was raised. By then, the Hyde Park location wasn't available, so it was eventually decided in 1902 that it should be placed in its present location at the end of Westminster Bridge. Queen Victoria had died the year before, and Britain had just emerged victorious in the Second Boer War. The sculpture itself contains all of the historiographical themes of Boudicca that we have talked about. She is a maternal figure, with her daughters on either side. They are half-naked and unarmed, emphasising their vulnerability and innocence. She is a warrior, standing on a war chariot with scythes attached to the wheels. The horses are rearing, but she has no need to hold the reins. Instead, holding a spear in one hand and the other aloft. And finally, she is a symbol of Britain, leading the charge against her foes. This is particularly shown in the inscriptions at the base of the sculpture. On one side it says, Boudicca, Queen of the Iceni, who died AD 61 after leading her people against the Roman invader. And on the other side, it gives a quote from Cowper's poem. Regions Caesar never knew, thy posterity shall sway. So far then, we have seen the memory of Boudicca dominated by men, but this all changed in the 20th century. First, Boudicca was taken up by the suffrage movement as a heroic feminist figure fighting against male domination. Dora Montefiore, a leading suffragist, recalled holding a meeting near the Thornycroft sculpture. Quote, It had long been my wish to hold a meeting there, as Boadicea in her chariot always appeared to me to be advancing threateningly on the Houses of Parliament, and she was therefore a symbol of the attitude towards Parliament of us militant women. Freed suffragette prisoners at this time were given drawings of Boudicca based on the sculpture, but with the spear transformed into a banner reading Votes for Women. The suffrage movement also put on a theatrical performance called The Pageant of Great Women, which prominently featured Boudicca. At the climax of the performance, Prejudice, naturally paid by a man, states that men should rule for they possess the monopoly on force. At this point, Boudicca and Joan of Arc appear and charge him down, though with rhetoric rather than violence. This notion of Boudicca was also popular in the feminist movement in the second half of the 20th century. For example, the artist Judy Chicago included Boudicca in her dinner party installation, which consisted of 39 place settings on a banqueting table celebrating great women in history, from Boudicca and Eleanor of Aquitaine to Virginia Woolf and Georgia O'Keeffe. Feminist poet Judy Graham also held up Boudicca as a feminist bulwark against male oppression, but also claimed her as a figurehead for the gay community, claiming that, quote, Boudicca was barbarian and a Celt, and her pudenda would have been active, unashamed, and radiating with female power all her life. It would have been unnatural for Queen Boudicca not to be a lesbian. She was, after all, a queen and a military leader of her people. Now, this is, to say the least, a bit of a stretch, and completely ahistorical. The idea of Boudicca as an icon of liberated sexuality, both hetero and homosexual, is another way in which she has been viewed. Modern images of her frequently feature her as a liberated woman, 
a natural counterpoint for the conservatism and frigid temperament of the establishment. This was particularly popular in the 1980s, where this liberated anti-establishment Boudicca was held up as a counterweight to the image of Margaret Thatcher and her government. The anti-establishment aspect has also made Boudicca a heroine from everyone from anarchists to Brexiteers in recent years. Other movements that have adopted Boudicca include Welsh nationalists, who see themselves as the natural inheritors of the Celtic mantle, with England now held up as the imperial oppressor. A statue similar to that of Thornycroft stands in Cardiff City Hall, with Boudicca and her daughters at its heart. While Boudicca has been well represented in plays and books over the centuries, she hasn't had much in the way of TV or film adaptations, and what there has been has only really been for a UK audience. In 1986, Channel 4 screened Imaginary Women, where rock star Toya Wilcox played Boudicca as a kind of punk rock queen. Very 80s. Then, in 2003, there was the TV movie Boudicca, The Warrior Queen, starring Alex Kingston and a young Emily Blunt. And this plays on both the maternal and warrior aspects of Boudicca. It's not exactly a paragon of historical accuracy, and is a bit silly in places, but the portrayal of the relationships between mother and daughter, and the contrast of that with Nero and Agrippina, is pretty good. If you want to watch it, you can find it on YouTube and probably some other places as well. In my googling for this show, I also found a 2019 film called Boudicca, The Rise of the Warrior Queen, which seems to be an origin story for Boudicca from her childhood. I haven't seen it, but it looks quite odd to say the least. It's fair to say then that Boudicca has gone on quite a journey since she met her end in the 1st century CE. As a fierce warrior, bloody barbarian, proud mother, patriotic hero, masculine leader, weak, vengeance-filled virago, feminist heroine, freedom fighter and anti-establishment champion, her story has been adapted and championed by all sides of the political spectrum. In many ways, this morphing of her story mirrors the contours of British history, charting the nation's rise to greatest imperial might and then how it has changed society ever since. I feel sure that, if I did this episode again in a few decades, I would have to tack on another section on how new groups have taken and used Boudicca's story. But, of course, with all this, it's important to remember that, behind all the politics and the legend, there was a real woman, who suffered a great injustice, and nearly brought down Roman influence in Britain forever. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 